Julie, I just came in from about three straight weeks on the road, spending my time with financial advisors, financial professionals, their clients, you name it. And I'll tell you, I, I can't remember a time in my 30 plus year career when things have been so up in the air, especially about fixed income markets. I mean, these are the markets that are supposed to provide stability. And throughout 2022, they've been nothing but a source of frustration, volatility, and and that word uncertainty. I don't know if you felt the same. John, I've experienced the same thing. In fact, in the conversations that I'm having with financial professionals, it feels as if they're about ready to abandon the whole category of fixed income and just look forward. And, and I feel like there's an opportunity to break this down a little bit today. I think when we, when we hear the term capitulation, a lot of us know exactly what it means in the equity markets, but uh, you know, it's sure been feeling like we've been getting closer to that in the fixed income markets. Well, I think there's no better time than to have Amar Ragante with us to break down some of his thoughts, philosophy, and, and look at the opportunities that lie ahead as it pertains to fixed income. Today, we're joined by Amar Ragante, Managing Director at Wellington Management and Fixed Income Strategist for Hartford Funds. As an investment director in investment products and strategies, Amar works closely with investors to help ensure the integrity of their fixed income investment approaches. This includes meeting regularly with fixed income investment teams and overseeing portfolio positioning, performance and risk exposures, as well as developing new products and client solutions and managing business issues such as capacity, fees and guidelines. He also meets with clients, prospects and consultants to communicate Wellington Management's investment philosophy, strategy, positioning and performance. Prior to joining Wellington Management in 2018, he worked as a strategist at Grantham Mayo Van Otterloo on both fixed income and asset allocation strategies. Previously, he served as the deputy director of the Office of Debt Management at the U.S. Treasury Department. He also held roles in fixed income markets as an investment grade portfolio manager at UBS Global Asset Management, a derivative solution strategist at Merrill Lynch, and a credit analyst at UBS Investment Bank. He has an MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, a Master of Science in European Political Economy from the London School of Economics and Political Science, and a Bachelor of Arts from Vassar College. I'm really looking forward to our listeners getting to hear the conversation that we recently had with Amar about his views of fixed income and where we go from here. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Julie. We're the hosts of the Hartford Fund's Human-Centric Investing Podcast. Every other week, we're talking with inspiring thought leaders to hear their best ideas for how you can transform your relationships with your clients. Let's go. Amar, welcome to the Human-Centric Investing Podcast today. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Amar, thanks for being with us. And you know, my first question for you is that as I've traveled with financial advisors over the past several months, probably the thing I hear most about these markets is that there's no place to hide, right? Fixed income was supposed to be our, our bastion in the storm, if you will. Can you share with us a little bit about what's happened? And, and as an advisor, how would you try to explain that to your clients, especially clients who thought that, you know, that they were allocated in a, um, somewhat of a conservative position? That, that's a great question. Um, generally speaking, over long periods of time and for the long-term investor, 
uh, fixed income, you know, can be that diversifier to your overall allocation. But there are, and historically there have been, narrow periods of time where you have these bursts of inflation, uh, and you know, many fixed income asset classes don't do well, nor do equities during those narrow periods of time. So uh, the challenge, of course, then is the diversification feature uh, declines. But really, I think what's important is to try to understand whether they think that that burst of inflation is a permanent or structural feature, or is going to continue higher, or they think it's going to you know normalize or or, or come lower uh, in the next several months to a year. And in that case, fixed income resumes its really critical role in a portfolio. Um, and you know this isn't to uh, overemphasize this, but there's also fixed income strategies that that have been able to navigate. Uh, this period of turbulence much better than than other ones. So, you know, for example, you know, a, a global bond allocation uh, that really looks at you know relative value between interest rates and currencies, like that, that has been one that that can navigate these periods uh, in a way that uh, is probably a little bit more within the expectation range of the advisors you've been talking to. Amar, you just started to talk about the different types of fixed income. And it seems like when we talk about fixed income, oftentimes we lump it all together into one bucket. And could we maybe just since we're kicking things off today, start to unpack and define some of the different types and areas. And and as you define those for us, are there any that are looking more attractive now as we as we look forward? Yeah, it's it's always amazing uh, as you know, we all know that uh, people can have a long discussion about the different types of equities out there and the different type of equity strategies. But fixed income is often lumped into just sort of one, you know, one type of asset class. When the reality is, is that, it, you know, it's an extremely diversified, uh, a, a diversified sector. Uh, and within it are lots of subsectors and strategies that perform in, in really different ways uh, in different parts of the cycle. Uh, so just, you know, from our perspective, we've often thought of fixed income as something that can provide income. It can provide, you know, risk diversification in some cases. Uh, it can provide uh, tax, you know, relief, uh, depending upon, you know, if you're in tax exempt uh, or taxable municipal bonds. So it, it can provide a great deal of, of different things. But I think oftentimes people just treat it as like this, this one type of asset class. Um, and within the fixed income world, uh, there are uh, a number of sub-asset classes and, and approaches that make a lot of sense for people to take a look at. Uh, it, we would, I, I mentioned you know, uh, approaches via global bonds where uh, you, you can look across the entire fixed income space around the world and decide whether or not, uh, or your, your manager or strategi strategist can decide whether or not uh, you know, the bonds of one particular country look better relative to the bonds of another country. And by, you know, looking at the and the differences between these types of interest rate curves or, or foreign exchange, there's it's actually a way of being able to uh, take advantage of the volatility that's currently plaguing markets. And you've seen strategies that can do that. Uh, in other cases, what, you know, the strategies that a lot of people are familiar with core, core plus, or municipal bond strategies have traditionally existed uh, to be both liquid and a form of capital preservation, and in the case of municipal bonds, uh, a way of receiving uh, tax-exempt income. Uh, those are also utilized in times when there's recessions, right? They're there to help protect you or your allocation in periods of deflation 
in periods of flight to quality uh, or when people are, are sort of rushing to the safety of higher quality bonds. And then, you know, you can look at the credit markets where there's a, a large spectrum of different types of issuers from emerging market countries to high yield credit to high quality investment grade corporates, all of which would provide yield and income that, you know, I think, you know, a lot of advisors might find interesting. And, and remember, just two or three short years ago, uh, though it probably feels like a long time now, uh, you know, th those interest rates and yields were at very, very low levels. And people were struggling uh, for ways to really look at fixed income as a source of continuing income in their portfolios. Now, there's, there's a pretty large opportunity set that's evolved. Uh, and it, it really bears taking a look at all the different facets and features. So, Mar, right now in the fixed income markets, I mean, a lot of times you hear, especially when inflation is low, you start hearing about people theorizing about the mandates of the Federal Reserve, right? Is it full employment? Is it inflation? Is it? Would you say that this market is really solely focused right now on inflation, the causes of inflation, how to combat inflation? Is that really the key to understanding across just about any fixed income class what's going on right now? And, and second part of that question is, you know, if you were sitting on the Fed board, the Fed board, what would you be thinking right now about inflation? So, um, as you mentioned, the Federal Reserve has a dual mandate. Uh, one is focused on inflation and the other is focused on employment. And sometimes those those goals can be at odds with each other. So the Fed has to undertake a balancing act. Prior to this year, uh, the Fed really was laser focused on making sure that there was a full employment recovery. And, you know, in, in, a, in a view that I think, you know, the data has sort of has changed was that that the inflation that they were experiencing at the time would be rather short lived. So you know, once, you know, the end of 2021 came about and the Federal Reserve sort of took stock, you know, had realized that employment had gotten back to or near the levels that we were at prior to the pandemic, it really pivoted very quickly into focusing on its inflation mandate. Um, and and, and of course, rapidly started raising rates uh, in order to combat inflation and to try to bring about what I would call a looser set of financial conditions, uh, or sorry, tighter set of financial conditions, I apologize, uh, that would slow the economy enough that it would cool uh, inflation. Look, I, if I was you know, sitting on, on the Fed board, I've, of course, you know, as mandated, I'd have to really do, I would have to think about inflation. Um, but of course, I would proceed relatively cautiously uh, and and tighten financial conditions via interest rate hikes. But then I would certainly pause and think to see uh, how long it took for that to pass through. As we know, and as we've discovered, uh, monetary policy uh, operates with significant lags. Uh, so what you're doing today might not show up for months uh, into markets. And additionally, whether or not you know this Fed, uh, I guess, likes it, to some degree, because of the size of the US economy, the preponderance of its capital markets and the role of the dollar as the reserve currency in the world, uh, central bank policy in the United States has ripple effects into the rest of the world. And that ripple effects can be destabilizing. It can damage growth around the world. And I think you know we always have to understand that that stuff can, can easily uh, spill over into our own uh, economic uh, conditions. And, and the Fed you know, needs to be hyper cognizant of that, whether or not it's, it's sort of narrowly within the mandate that, that I just described earlier. Amar, a moment ago, you mentioned yield to worst. Uh, for financial advisors not familiar with that terminology, uh, 
how would you further describe yield to worse? What, what does that mean? Yeah, I'm going to paraphrase here because this isn't a textbook de definition, but uh, but it's a term uh, that's used among fixed income professionals really as a way of doing an apples to apples comparison uh, across different types of fixed income securities. Uh, it really is about like the lowest uh, possible yield excluding default that a bond can have given where it's trading in dollar price and where it's it's secondary you know yield is trading on the bond market. So um, yeah, that that's how we, we would look across a number of different bonds and compare like uh, you know uh, what uh, uh, the yield to worse are. You talk about a ripple effect, Amar, and obviously there's been a lot of news about the UK markets. And could you talk us through a little bit about sort of what happened there and how does that impact what's happening in the US, if at all, and and maybe how our regulators are thinking about things as we look forward? Yeah, so the UK is, I think, a, a really interesting example of what happens when you make rapid, you know, uh, almost violent turns in monetary policy. So over the course of this last year, interest rates in the United States rose rapidly, and they rose in uh, the European Union and in the UK as well, uh, both sort of in sympathy with what was happening with, with central bank policy, global inflation conditions, uh, and so on. And, you know, th that, that's ex that can be expected to happen. But what happened within the United Kingdom was is that uh, there was a rapid rise uh, in rates uh, over that period of time. And many UK pension entities uh, did asset liability matching, right? They, they, they had a, a sense on their liability side that they, you know, they had the sort of maturity of their, of their liabilities, effectively when they're going to be paying out uh, to their participants. Um, and they, they, they matched that on the asset side. And uh, oftentimes how they would match it uh, is by receiving fixed rates. And they would do this via, you know, the derivative markets, either in swaps or in futures. And I, that comes off as, as, a, as a, you know, almost like a, a bad word, set of words, but th that's, that was literally them trying to balance their assets and liabilities and using a number of financial instruments to do that. Uh, the challenge is that when interest rates go up really, really quickly, well, uh, they have one positive impact for the UK pensions, which is that their liabilities shrink because they're discounting those liabilities by this, this higher interest rate, which means they, they get smaller. But the problem, of course, is, is that they were uh, on, on their asset side of their balance sheet, they were actually receiving uh, fixed rates via derivatives. And what happens in derivatives is if there's a change in the positioning where the position moves against you, as it does if rates rise and, and you, you hold a fixed rate instrument, they had to post collateral to sort of make up for, for that change. And it was a rapid rise in rates and it happened very quickly. So they had to post a substantial amount of collateral. And what that leads to often is a sale of assets in order to do that. So they sold, you know, a lot of liquid assets. And you can, you know, we heard this and saw this via the popular press, the financial press, um, and, and you know, statements by uh, the, the UK regulatory community. And, uh, and of course, as they're selling those assets, they're adding pressure in upward movements and rates. Now, this didn't happen by itself. There was a catalyst to this, which was the UK government uh, released what was called the mini budget. And the mini budget effectively was uh, calling for a set of tax cuts in order to spur growth. But as we all know, the UK is facing a substantial set of inflationary conditions. So when you're having inflation and your government budget program is what they would call pro-growth, which involves tax cuts and probably more deficit spending, 
that really shocked the UK uh, interest rate markets and gilt markets, which is the sovereign bonds, upward and higher. And that fed, you know, this cycle that had been happening, that it's slowly been happening, but really was the catalyst that drove things sharply higher. Then it caused all of these UK pensions to have to post collateral and that caused a sale of assets. And then again, that drove things upward. Now, the UK regulators and uh, the Bank of England uh, has attempted to intervene. Uh, and again, that was somewhat effective. Then they said they weren't going to do it. And that caused a bit more instability in the market. And finally, I believe as of you know fairly recently, the new newly appointed chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, is reversing the government's policies. And that's bringing some stability to markets. Um, and this was a long way of saying that rapid changes in rates can often be very destabilizing events, uh, not just in fixed income, but across all capital markets. So, Amar, I know, boy, about a year ago, everybody was talking about uh, within the fixed income portion of your portfolio, duration, right? And where should duration be? Should we be shortening? Should we be lengthening? Uh, given what we've been through uh, and what may lie ahead, uh, what would you counsel people about right now concerning uh, duration? Would be you be adding? Would you still be pulling back? I know, you know, a lot of us may be kind of thinking about a more defensive posture, but uh, what would you say? Look, it's, you know, being a holder of duration, you know, it's been a very challenging time for, for a lot of, of individual investors and market participants. Um, but, you know, one of the things that you have to really think about as you hold duration is like, what, what are you using it for? And what it's normally utilized for is if there's some type of deflationary shock in, in the economy. Um, and or if there's a flight to quality, that interest rate duration uh, has traditionally and historically served as an offset. Obviously, this year, because we've had a significant amount of inflation, that duration hasn't been helpful. But if you listen to what the Federal Reserve is saying, what, what Chairman Powell is communicating is that, you know, the Fed is attempting to tighten financial conditions. The Federal Reserve works primarily through a markets based channel. They're trying to, by raising interest rates and the process of quantitative tightening, they're trying to slow down and, and candidly, probably lower portions of, of the capital markets. And ideally, that will spill over into the real economy and, you know, like effectively loosen the job market, given how tight it is, and slow down aggregate demand enough that um, inflation won't be as much of a problem. You know, what the Fed is telegraphing is that it's determined to bring down inflation and it's determined to slow down the economy. This is ex this is exactly sort of the usage I think of at least duration for in your in your overall portfolio allocation. It's there when things are moving from you know fast or intermediate to a slower level. Like that's that's how duration can be helpful in your portfolio. Now it's very hard to say now's the perfect moment or last week was or next week is but what my opinion has been that you should slowly be adding duration to your portfolio and you know several years ago uh that was actually almost a painful thing to consider because there was an opportunity cost in that like interest rates were really low yield to worse were very low as well you weren't generating much income off of your fixed income portfolio so there was a significant opportunity cost to adding you know, an additional marginal dollar into your bond portfolio. That has changed now. Uh, you know, the opportunity cost is significantly lower. In fact, I would say it's re it's it's reversed, right? You're you're actually now getting paid 
to add duration, to add fixed income allocations into your into your overall portfolio, uh, and you're being paid you know a significant sum based on the you know the last you know several years of data, uh, which is your in in the highest quality bonds, uh, you're getting paid you know mid to single digits on a yield to worst basis, and in, you know in in what I would call a little bit more risk seeking parts of the bond market you're getting paid up to double digits or very close to them on a yield to worst basis. That you know, means that you're not waiting around for returns. Those returns are theoretically accruing like as you're holding those, those bonds. So um, I think of it as actually a really attractive time to think about adding duration and think about expanding the overall share of fixed income you have in your allocation. Amar, just so that we're all on the same page with our listeners, when you say duration, how are you defining that in your mind so that we're we're all on the same page? Sure. Well, uh, duration is traditionally thought of as um, you know the sensitivity uh, of the price of a bond to changes in interest rates. Uh, now, generally speaking, uh, the more you know years to maturity there is on a bond the longer that duration is, meaning there's more cash flows uh, involved. And because of that, uh, it's sensitive to you know, changes in interest rates a lot more than a bond that was, for example, going to mature next year because you just know it's going to mature next year. But longer maturity bonds tend to have more duration sensitivity overall. You know, we, we've talked about that these are just unprecedented times, and I know that word is at risk of being overutilized, and I'm sure, Mark, you counted the number of times in a day you've said that. It's probably too many to tally. But if I think about financial professionals engaging with their clients, this is such an emotional time, and the, and the phones are ringing, and the emails are coming in, and people are seeing the volatility in the markets, and their bar charts are shrinking on their statements. How, from a financial uh, professional perspective, how, what are some talking points or what, what would be the story or the rationale that, that we could share with them to just help clients continue to understand and have some perspective as they look forward uh, as it pertains to fixed income? Yeah. Um, look, I think it's, it's good to take this sort of in, in the overall context of maybe, let's say, the last decade even, um, or just you know slightly longer than that. This is, from our perspective, this is not 2008 and 2009. And if you know you were in the markets back then, uh, or even if you weren't in the markets back then, there was really almost an existential risk that was affecting U.S. capital markets. Uh, at the time, it was very unclear which financial institutions were solvent or not. Uh, you know, there were at that at that time there were there was pretty active talk of pulling money out of bank accounts if it went above the FDIC threshold. Uh, so the basic functioning of, of capital markets was extraordinarily problematic. And uh, when you when we actually think about the full recovery that took place in financial markets, while financial markets might have recovered relatively you know, quickly in the two to three years following uh, the GFC, the real economy took a long time to heal. In, indeed, in, in some measures of, of employment, we never really got back to it to almost a full decade after the end of the crisis. That is not the situation that we're facing from from our perspective. Uh, This is, you know, we're we're not facing what I would call an existential risk to capital markets uh, because of of near-term inflation or the Fed hiking. What we're facing is a really strong economy that has a very tight labor market where the demand is outstripping the supply of the economy uh, to satisfy, uh, you know, society's demand for goods and services. 
and that's that's partly what's causing the inflation. I mean, obviously, another part of it is energy and 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 the crisis we see in Europe. Uh, but you know, the part I've described about just the, the demand conditions within the economy, where you have a strong like a consumer that has significant savings, where you have corporate balance sheets that are generally in good shape, uh, where you have state and local governments. Uh, that have uh, a lot of funds to deploy and, and are not in the dire situation they were in 2009 and 2010. You're talking about an economy that's in really good shape, and that's bec and because of that is feeding into core inflation. Like it's that demand that is driving uh, the Fed's you know requirement almost to pivot and tighten interest rate policy. That, that's absolutely not the case we saw in 08 and 09. So what we're seeing now is while it's it's you know challenging to look at, at, at capital market returns. It's in the context of a relatively strong economy, and that's a good thing because uh, over time, if you think the Fed is actually going to cool inflation and slow down the economy, it means there's a much much smaller chance of of something like turning into a crisis like situation, and that even if the economy does slow, the ability for it to to come back is much better than it was uh, where we we're sitting in 2008 2009. And all of that allows, like from a capital markets perspective, the ability to invest with probably a lot greater confidence than you could in 08 and 09, uh, when you weren't you were really concerned about whether the system itself could uh, could function without active intervention by by uh, the policymaking community. So, Mar, I want to revisit a topic that Julie asked you about earlier, which is relative valuations within the fixed income market overall. So. You know, when I know from speaking with you, you're moderate, moderately bullish on fixed income. So maybe like asking which one of your children you love the most, right? But maybe I shouldn't put it that way. Maybe we should talk about which one of our kids is best behaved when things go a little crazy, right? So I guess in that context, as you look at different sectors, you just mentioned munis, uh, but I'm interested, like during periods like this, are there... Are there areas of the fixed income market that you would give a nod to versus others that you, you would kind of lean to slightly versus others at this point in the cycle? Yeah. So let's just say from a starting point, you know, and I, I do think this is the case that you want to that you want to grow the share of fixed income you have in your overall allocation. Well, first and foremost, if you're trying to protect yourself from a slowing economy or recessionary conditions down the line, there, there are ways you can do that. You can look at, uh, you know, active strategies that are benchmarked to the the Bloomberg Aggregate Index, which is sort of the widest, widely used U.S. dollar index of high quality fixed income, and that's generally a mixture of investment grade corporate securities, uh, agency MBS, which uh, you may or may not know is is under the conservatorship, the majority of it of the U.S. Treasury. Uh, and then the U.S. Treasury securities market, and this sort of blended index is 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 considered sort of the proxy for investing in high quality fixed income in in the U.S. market. And that is that is sort of like you know the, the starting point. If you're building a sandwich, that's like the bread, right? It's 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 very standard, uh, and it it you know we believe it it offers in recessionary conditions uh, a, a better way to to help protect your overall allocation. Um, but you know this this time period's not exactly the most normal one, uh, and and we talked about this. Uh, you know it's possible inflation remains a little bit stickier uh, than we expect. Uh, there's tons of geopolitical risk that we see out you know out like uh, outside our well, you know, 
like in Europe and and in Asia, um, and and like that we don't you know, and we we've said this, we don't think this is going away necessarily in the near term either. Um, and then uh, additionally, uh, all of this sort of feeds into uh, volatility that just sort of permeates markets, right? And uh, a, a really you know interesting way of taking advantage of that volatility uh, is through uh, a global bond strategy and. Not all global bond strategies are, are really created the same, right? There's, you know, it, it, there's some that just actually just go buy bonds from abroad and, and sort of have those. And I, I don't think that's as useful to a U.S.-based investor. But there are global bond strategies that actively will be, you know, long one interest rate and short another interest rate, or long one currency versus another currency. And the point of that is to exploit differentials, both from valuation or where we are in the cycle between these, and you know, those over the course pre-COVID, you know, I, I think they got, you know, relatively a little bit sleepy because there wasn't a ton of volatility in markets. But in volatile markets, those type of strategies can do, you know, particularly well. And I think that's actually a very forward-leaning way of saying, I think the world's going to be a, a little bit bouncy. And this is one way of, of dealing with that. I, I mentioned munis and uh, it's, you know, kind of extraordinary to know, just to, if you look at the muni market and compare it to where we were following the financial crisis, when state and local governments had to do layoffs and cut back on services, that's absolutely not the case right now. Uh, you know, they're you know overall as a sector, they're in really good shape. And uh, you know, when you're thinking from a tax exempt perspective, I think it's very interesting that you can now start receiving yields that that will actually make you take a look again, uh, at what used to be a relatively quiet asset class. So that I think of that as the high quality sort of, you know, bucket. Now, um, you know, if you're growing the share of your fixed income allocation, and let's say you're funding it from equities and you say, well, I don't want to be purely more on the, uh, the mitigation side or on things on just the highest quality side, because I do want some substantial upside or look to get you know, better, better returns than, than just mid single digit yield to worse. Well, then uh, you should look to sort of more diversified credit strategies, right? Like, uh, and, and, and that allows you to look around the entire credit spectrum and find the bonds or sectors that are priced to deliver you uh, over the, some course of time, like, you know, robust expected returns. Uh, but remember, you know, like as you do credit, uh, and the more the more you move down the credit scale, like the more volatile that allocation can be. But now you're at least getting compensated for for that volatility. And then finally, even on the just the shorter maturity or shorter duration type of of allocation, you know you you don't have to uh, not completely abandon that. You're you're getting you know paid somewhat well too, given how high uh, front end interest rates have risen. So. To me, as you said, it's hard to pick your. There, there are just so many different spots now uh, that I think are attractive in fixed income. But you can now build an allocation that is really much more tailored toward your your needs, your risk appetite, uh, and your concerns over the next year or two uh, than you could two or three years ago, where you just you simply had a, too big of an opportunity cost oftentimes to make that allocation. So if we think about the actual implementation, will you share your thoughts and philosophies around individual bonds versus bond funds and some of your thoughts there as we as we think about the future? Sure. Look, I, I think I think um, I think bond funds uh, for a number of reasons uh, are are something that is probably more useful uh, to an end asset owner 
than individual bonds. Sure, you know, you can buy an individual bond here or there, and there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the challenges are, unless it's like a U.S. government security, uh, you know, you, you need to go through and do the underlying credit work. Uh, those credit details can change. Uh, sometimes that bond on secondary markets could have reached what we'd call like its full valuation, meaning, you know, there's not much more room for either the dollar price to appreciate uh, or, you know, there's other bonds of equal quality or equivalent quality that might be more attractive or priced more attractively. Um, and, 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 you know, that ability to rotate, to look across the, the, the universe that you've decided you need to find the right bonds, to do the credit analysis on them, to maintain that credit analysis, and then to sell them uh, as appropriate, you know, and buy new bonds, like that comes from a fund, right? And it's the job of that fund to put together those portfolios, to worry, you know, about which bonds aren't priced for the, the outcomes that they want, uh, and then to get, obviously get rid of those and cycle into bonds that, that are. You, it's very hard to do that in static bond allocations, right? You You buy it, things can change and you sort of hold on to it and there's opportunities that you miss um, and you don't effectively have the di the dynamism, which I think is important both from a return perspective and a risk management perspective uh, that I think is, is critical to successful bond investing. Amar, recently we, we did an informal survey on one of the webinars that we hold on a regular basis and we asked financial advisors whether they expected in 2023 that we would experience a recession. And uh, the vast majority agreed that they believed we would experience a recession. Now, we didn't discuss severity. We didn't discuss some would say we're already in recession, so on and so forth. But, you know, as you read the headlines just over the past several weeks, I think based on our discussion earlier about the Fed, the Fed has just, just about come out and said, look, we are more willing to make a mistake to control inflation then we are making a mistake worried about implications for recession, which signaled to a lot of people. And you mentioned before the lag at which some of these interest rates can affect the economy. Let's let's play out a scenario and let's say that uh, somewhere in the midst of 2023, we're in a recession and let's say a, a fairly severe recession. How would you expect fixed income to act in that scenario? Yeah. So, um, look, I think uh those concerns that people have on on the fed's communications uh you know th that that sounds like a reasonable concern you know right when the federal reserve is in this tightening process and they've um they've really focused on the inflation portion of their mandate like history would tell you that there's a higher probability of inflation so in that case right like this is uh this is where fixed income particularly high quality fixed income uh, will be there to uh, act, you know, from our perspective, as a capital preservation vehicle as well as a return vehicle. I mean, and it happens, in, you know, in two ways, right? If you have the right collection of bonds, if you've, you know, done the credit work, you keep, you know, any kind of what I would call defaults and impairments to a minimum. And then, secondly, uh, if you know the Fed is, you know, in the process of uh, inadvertently engineering a recession, that means rates will have to come lower. Uh, it likely means that, uh, you know, both real and nominal interest rates uh, would decline under that scenario. And if that's the case, you know, the cap, there's, there are capital gains valuations in bonds. And I say this, you know, tongue in cheek, but rates go down, bond prices go up. Uh, and, but th that, that is, you know, effectively how the math of, of fixed income 
uh, as a starting point, at least, like works. So uh, in that case, you know, these bonds, like just say hypothetically, if you owned a whole collection of bonds that were yielding four and five percent, uh, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, the fair value for those maturities was now down to two or three percent. Well, you know, that the net present value of that differential in interest rate shows up in the price, right? And uh, if you've been lucky enough to make that allocation decision, like th that's how you'd get capital appreciation out of it. So uh, I, I and, and but what's really important here is that you you it has to happen before that happens, right? Like after the recession or after a recession, you're you're buying bonds that are already pricing in slow growth and low inflation and have pretty low yields. And yes, I still think at that point there could be usefulness to you in that portfolio, but it becomes less useful than making than than you would think of if you're gradually adding while rates are at you know these these from at least a historical perspective uh, you know these near term highs. So uh, that's why it's it's hard to call exact if you're worried about that if that's your concern you know the way to to think about allocating is to begin that process of allocating to high quality fixed income and that includes uh, duration in that as well uh, and 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 it includes duration includes possibly, you know, thinking about like a global allocation includes thinking about municipal securities, all of those, uh, depending on your needs. And, and that is, you know, there to help you sort of navigate what a 2023 downturn would look like, uh, uh, you know, as we talked about. So Omar, I guess, listening to what you said there, I think, you know, when when interest rates are calm and fixed income markets are doing what they're supposed to, we often look at the equity markets and we tell our clients that the markets are forward looking. And we mean the equity market is forward looking, right? So by the time you're ready to invest, the, the, you know, the market has probably already moved. It sounds like you're telling us the bond market may be even more plain spoken in terms of being a forward looking predictor of future economic activity, right? Yeah, and look, and I say this as a as a fixed income professional, but I've always delineated between the two. Is in a way, the equity market is, as you notice, yes, it, it can be forward looking, but it also takes into account almost like the animal spirits of markets, right? The current psychology for risk on or risk off. I always like to think of the fixed income market as much more of a measurement of blood pressure, right? When the economy is running hot. When inflation is hot, the blood pressure, hence the yields, are, are high. When things are, are more quiet, where they're more dormant, you know, th that tends to come down. Fixed income markets are absolutely, they attempt to be forward-looking as well. And, you know, the reason why we're in an inverted yield curve right now is because that's the market's feedback mechanism saying that at some point in the future, rates, current rates, will have to be lower than what they are right now. And, and that's what that inversion is telling us, right? Just, you know, the commonly held view within fixed income markets is that an inverted yield curve is a forward-looking way of saying at some point monetary policy is too tight and it has to be relaxed and interest rates have to come down. And usually the catalyst for that is some type of, re, you know, recessionary event. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I know equity markets have their own lenses. I don't think in, in my view there's something as elegant uh, as that available necessarily in equity markets, where in fixed income markets, it's sort of available on a screen to, to take a look at. 
Amar, those that know me know that I'm very passionate about teams and communication and how groups of people share information, especially when it's changing so rapidly. And for our financial professionals listening, I'm confident that every single day with things with the volatility and, and client inquiries, they're they're navigating their way through this information exchange process amongst their own teams. Do you have any strategies or best practices that you and your team have put into place during these times that you could share with our listeners to help them continue to do the best job that they can sharing information and making sure that everyone is up to speed and ultimately delivering the client experience that they want to be delivering? Yeah, I, look, I think there's there's a couple of things that we do that that help us. The first is, is that we are, you know, we, we pride ourselves on, on collaboration, right? Which means... Uh, I might have a view or I might have a set of ideas. And in part, uh, I, I'd like to think they're well thought out and well researched, but they're also shaped by my own perspectives and, and background and, 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 and events that I've worked through. So the more you, you, you are able to talk to teammates, uh, colleagues, uh, you know, experts in different fields, the more that you can you know, decide whether or not you are challenging your own assumptions uh, enough. Uh, and additionally, learning about things that you may not have heard of or or, or have talked about in, in, in recent, you know, recent time. So I, I think making like working in as collaborative an environment as possible is uh, critical. And within that, that means people need to be able to speak and share ideas and do that in a way that is, is encouraged, uh, even though it, it, you can be wrong as, as you know, anyone can be in anything, uh, but that elevates uh, a conversation. And I know, um, that's something that my team and my firm, uh, we, we really think is part of our culture, but it's not something that comes easily. You have to work at it. You have to, you have to push you know, yourself and others to, to do that and to take part uh, because it, it just, it's not something that just happens. Um, so for me, always sort of like kind of checking my assumptions, talking through with other people uh, who have the same and different backgrounds I think is one of the most critical views of getting out of your own head, just like getting out of, you know, your own set of thoughts that comes back to the same type of conclusion time and time again. And that doesn't mean you're incorrect or wrong. It just means that like, I think there's a better chance of being right uh, when you've put it through a full vetting process. So Amar, I know from our previous conversations that you're moderately bullish on fixed income in general. So maybe when I talk to you about different segments of the fixed income market, it'd be like asking, like if somebody asked me which of my kids is my favorite, but maybe while I don't want to choose that, I could tell you which one of my children would be better behaved in uncertain times. And so maybe it's better phrasing it like that as you scan the fixed income landscape. Uh, what assets within fixed income would you expect to be better behaved, if you would, if we really don't know what's happening going forward? I don't want to be purely on the mitigation side, uh, but given where yields are in some parts of the credit market, uh, for you know individuals who are either a bit more risk-seeking or seeking to replace some of their their riskier equity allocations, there's a, a pretty interesting opportunity set as well in diversified credit. So, Amar, to help our audience get get inside of a Mars head, we actually have a fun little exercise that that we often ask our guests to participate in that we call the lightning round. Now, as opposed to many of the questions we've asked you earlier about technical issues within the fixed income market, I think you'll find these questions a little bit easier. 
But what we want to do is really hear your top of mind, first impression answers to the questions that Julie and I are going to fire at you. So if you're ready to go. Okay. <laughs> this is more intimidating. Julie, you want to start? Absolutely. So Amar, on a scale of one to 10, how good of a driver are you? I, I'm a nine. I mean, I, I think I'm really good, but I'm, I'm, I'm a really careful driver. And maybe that's because I work in fixed income. So, yeah. <laughs> what, is, what, is your, what is your favorite holiday? Uh, I, you know what? I actually, I, I, think, I think the Christmas time is, is like the, my most favorite holiday, partly because, uh, you know, my wife and I actually love going to the theater and seeing the Nutcracker and a Christmas Carol and like everything that comes out during the month of December. So uh, I think we, we both really enjoy that time of year. What's your favorite kind of cereal? Oh, Lucky Charms. Are you a morning person or a night owl? A night owl, definitely. If you had your choice, would you choose cake or pie? Pie. Um, a way better expression of fruit is my, is my thought. <laughs> what do you think is the best age to be? Wow. I'm going to say, so I'll, I'll say in my early twenties, my first boss, when I was a credit analyst told me my mid thirties would be the absolute best time. And I, I, I'm, I enjoy everything, but there is something very special in your thirties when you're at this sort of fulcrum point in your career where you feel more confident about the work you do, you feel more established, but like there's, there's, you know, you're still young enough that there's multiple sort of ladders up. Right. So I, I, I think that's a really special time. Uh, and people, some, you know, it's, it's easy to forget. You think about your first job or you think about, you know, where you are now, but that those, that mid thirties years, I think is, is really, it's extraordinary. It's, it's, I think it's a, it's a really fascinating time. In your opinion, what's the ideal outside temperature? Uh, I would say high 50s, low 60s, but clear, right? So sort of that crisp fall weather, which we're beginning to enjoy here in New England now. Would you describe yourself as an introvert or an extrovert? Uh, I think I'm an extrovert. I, 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 I like talking. I think one of the best parts of my job is talking to people and but, and I know it's primarily about bond markets, but, you know, inevitably you get to talk about a lot of other things, too. Well, Amar, we can't tell you how much we appreciated getting to know you personally and professionally today on our human-centric investing podcast. And we hope all of our listeners enjoyed our conversation today with Amar Raganti. We're happy to announce that Amar has been appointed to a newly created position as the fixed income strategist for Hartford Funds. He'll be writing a monthly commentary to help financial professionals titled Fixed Income Observations that you can access at hartfordfunds.com slash Amar. Again, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Hartford Funds Human-Centric Investing Podcast. If you'd like to tune in for more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube.
And if you'd like to be a guest and share your best ideas for transforming client relationships, email us at guestbooking at hartfordfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon.